It was the only time that my dad came home from work in the middle of the day to discipline me. It was an event surrounding the ice cream truck in the middle of summer. My friends and I, we were out playing in the neighborhood, running around, and we we heard that distinct bell and that song in the distance. And this was a time when the ice cream trucks that I think they still use today, they were brand new. They were nice, and you could hear them, and you knew what it was when it came through your neighborhood. It wasn't something scary that you teach your kids to run from now. And so we all ran home, and we got our money, and we ran up to this truck and caught it before it left our neighborhood. And I ordered an ice cream sandwich. And as I held this ice cream sandwich in my hand, I was struck with disappointment as it was melting and it was, it, it was almost like dissolving in my hand, ice cream running down my hands. And um, I felt very uh, jealous and began to covet my friend's red popsicle that looked clean, pristine, and had like a bubblegum ball in the middle of it. And he was enjoying this popsicle. And so I came up with an ingenious plan. And I asked him, I said, do you want to trade bites of our ice cream? I'll give you a bite of my ice cream sandwich and you can give me a bite of your popsicle. And we can, you know, we'll just be great friends in that way. And sure, this, this was a great guy. This was a great friend. And we traded ice cream. I took his popsicle and he took my ice cream sandwich. He began to figure out how in the world he was going to take a bite of this ice cream that was running down his hands. And as he was trying to figure that out, I just ran with his popsicle. And I hid behind my house and scarfed down that popsicle and the bubble gum inside. And I could hear in the distance my friend crying and screaming. And I imagined him standing in the street as the ice cream truck just rolled away with ice cream all over him. And so I went inside and hid in my room. And then the classic scene, I heard the phone ring. could hear my mom's voice kind of getting louder and louder in the distance, and I could feel in the home her emotions sort of escalating as I laid on the the bottom bunk of my bunk bed in my Superman blankets, just wondering what was about to happen to me. And my mom came in the room, and she looked at me, and and when I saw her face, I just decided, I'm going to just flat out lie. There's no way I'm going to admit that. My friend's a liar. That never happened. I never did that. What in the world are you going to, uh, how in the world are you going to accuse me of that? And I remember going back and forth with her and finally she just closed the door and walked away. And then there was that moment where you're waiting. What is going to happen next? And I heard her on the phone with my dad. As we come to the passage today, We hear in the distance sounds of conviction where we are proven guilty as we peer into this passage, the classic passage where Jesus betrays, uh, is betrayed with a kiss from Judas. 
And, and we see that and we don't want to admit that we could ever do anything like that. And because our name is not Judas, we begin to say, it, it wasn't me. Just like the disciples we saw earlier in this uh, chapter who say, I, we would never do that. Peter, if, if I have to die, I will never betray you. I could never do what this, this one, the betrayer, is going to do to you. It could never be me. In reality, we're, we're lying, and we know it. And it's the worst thing we could do today. As we get to verse 41, we saw last week, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to the Father three times and asks for the cup of wrath to be removed for him. I, I, I don't want this to be your will, but if it is, I will submit to it. Three times to the Father, crying out in agony, overwhelmed with anxiety, and three times he marches back to the disciples and finds them sleeping. Traitors, sleeping, while he is crying out in agony. And we begin to see betrayal starting there. And in verse 41, he says, are you still sleeping? Are you still taking your rest almost sarcastically? This is the most grueling moment in the Savior's life. And the disciples, his friends, are sleeping. And he says, it is enough. The hour has come. And right there, Jesus realizes he is totally forsaken. The Father is not going to answer his prayer. The Father is not going to remove the cup from him. He will face wrath on the cross. It is enough. It's complete. I am forsaken. Jesus is forsaken, he says here, to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Not just Judas. Not just the religious elite. Mark uses a generic term, sinners, to say he is going to be betrayed into the hands of, of sinners who we all are. In verse 42, he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Here, Jesus says, the son of man, this title that is used of God's king in the book of Daniel the son of man, just like Adam, was created to be a king in the garden. And yet Adam sinned against God and the curse of sin has invaded the world. God has always promised that there would be another king who would replace Adam, a son of man, who would reassert the dominion that Adam never asserted in the garden. And here he says, I am God's king, I am that king, and I've come to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And notice he says, my betrayer is at hand. Here, the identity of the one who will sell Jesus out is still a mystery until we get to verse 43. And immediately, while he was speaking, while he's interacting with the disciples, are you still sleeping? The time has come. The hour has come. I have been forsaken into the hands of sinners. They turn around and there is Judas. Judas. And notice Judas came, one of the 12. Mark wants to emphasize this is the Judas who has been with Jesus these three years, who has done ministry with Jesus. He's very specific with who it is now. It's the accountant. It's the one who held the money, managed the finances, and here he comes. 
And notice who he's with. He is with a crowd with swords and clubs. Notice from the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, the scribes of the temple. Here he comes with temple security, temple police, and he comes with a mob of people with weapons. And notice he has a plan, verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. So Judas has held a conference call, a meeting with the Sanhedrin, with the the, the leaders that Jesus has gone back and forth with all week around the temple. The the, the, the temple that Jesus has condemned. He has has held a meeting with Jesus' enemies, public enemies. He has gone to them and he has made a deal with them. And how will they know who Jesus is? The one I will kiss is the man. Jesus' name is not even mentioned here. He is the man. He is the one who must be arrested. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And so Judas, Jesus' friends, comes with all of these All of this security, all of this power, and this manipulative sign, the one I will kiss, he is the one you should take away. And by the way, you're going to need guards, and you're going to need police. And there is a violent scene that is to occur in light of his kiss. Now, isn't it interesting that the sign is a kiss? And in this culture, it was a sign of respect. A sign of honor, not just friendship, which is a part of that, but honor and respect. And it's meant to single Jesus out because this would have been a moment of chaos. And many of the police, the the security, the guards, the the leaders who are there, they, they probably would have, some of them could have never seen Jesus and known what he looked like. You got to remember, they didn't have Facebook. That there was no Facebook stalking. Who is this guy? Probably no wanted signs around the temple. Remember, they didn't want this to go public because of the people. And so there's this secrecy that is going on. And he says, you will know him when I kiss him. And when he came, verse 45, he went up to him at once. And Rabbi, and I imagine he had a smile on his face. Because he's playing a game. As if Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen. Jesus already told us, told him, told others what's going to happen. Rabbi, I haven't seen you all night. Rabbi. And then kisses him with this sign of respect. And, And the passage almost slows down here. God wants us to see it. He is betrayed with a kiss of death, a sign of respect. And then immediately they lay hands on him in verse 46. The words get very violent. They grab him. And so we go to this from this sign of affection to immediately they're jerking him around. Immediately they seize him violently. Other gospel writers describe Jesus looking at Judas in this moment and saying, you betray me with a kiss? Really? Really, my friend? With a kiss? 
my student, my follower. With the, that, that's how you're going to do this, with a kiss. And he says to Judas, friend, do what you have come to do. And he gives himself over to this betrayal. He presses into it. Now, one of the ironies of probably the most popular sin in human history, when you, when you say Judas, don't be a Judas, you, you know what you're talking about. Don't be a traitor. Happens in the dark of night. And the scene is set up where there is so much secrecy. In the dark of night, that's where we're going to catch him. Judas would have known where Jesus was with his disciples. It would have been a time where they, they often went to this place and prayed. And Judas knows it, and he's told everyone, and they come at night in secret. Remember, they're fearful of the people rioting if they arrest Jesus, so they have to come in secret. And isn't it interesting that another term that we use for betrayal is to stab someone in the back? Where they can't see you. And yet Judas stabs Jesus in the back with a kiss. There is nothing subtle or secret about what he is doing to the Savior here. And Judas's kiss of death is to remind us of the nature of our sin. Whether we want to admit it or not, all of our sin is really this blatant. Sin in general is a blatant betrayal of Jesus Christ. God created the world for his glory. His glory is revealed in his son, Jesus, who is redeeming his glory in the world. And so when we sin, when we do things our own way, we are rejecting God's king. We are literally blatantly saying, I will live my own way for my own glory. There's nothing subtle about sin. We like to pretty it up. We like to hide it. We like to come in the dark of night like Judas. But it's all blatant. It's all right. We, we know what we're doing. And it's betrayal. God created the world for you. The best thing in in life would be that you submit to Jesus as your king. God even sends Jesus as a king who dies for your sin, who lives a perfect life for you. And when you reject him, it's betrayal, the one who died for you. All sin is blatant betrayal of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, Jesus knows that about you. He knows you are a blatant betrayer. And yet he has still come to die for you. And he knows that about you this morning. We have to admit in our hearts that many of us have gathered here today knowing that we will sell Jesus out. For various reasons across the room we've gathered here today. Some of us right now are calculating things we are going to do tomorrow at work that are blatant sin. And you are calculating it right now. I can't wait to get in that meeting so I can say this to this person and you know it's sin. I've got to get to my computer so I can change these numbers 
And you know it's blatant sin. I've got to get to this place so I can hide for some screen time. And you're contemplating it right now in worship. And Jesus would say to you, you betray me with a song. You betray me with a prayer. You betray me with a worship service, really? You're contemplating what you're going to do to sell me out. You're contemplating how you're going to get the payout. You betray me in this way? But notice there was one there who was intent on not betraying him. Notice verse 47. But one of those stood by and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now let's stop there. Because we go from the traitor's kiss to the let's roll with the swords. The only problem is this man with the sword is a fisherman. It's meant to be funny, so that's good that you're laughing. And he was probably going for the high priest, the servant of the high priest, his throat. And he missed because he's untrained. But even though he's untrained, he is very courageous and he is very bold. And most of the disciples, we, we begin to understand, they, they, their vision of the kingdom was takeover. We're going to take over. We're going to defeat Rome. We got the Messiah on our, how can we lose the son of man? We're about to roll up into Jerusalem and take over. And here it comes. Pulls out the sword. Goes to stab the servant and nicks his ear. And I imagine Jesus laughed at him inside. Really? Fisherman with a sword. What's interesting about verse 47. Remember who is probably helping Mark write this gospel Peter Peter the one who said I'm not going to betray you they they may leave but I will be there right beside you even if I have to die and here we see him begin to, to to move on that promise but notice he tells Mark don't use my name he's hidden in the story. Why is he hidden? Well, many believe that he didn't want the church later to know that this was him. But maybe there's more going on here. Remember in Matthew, Jesus turns to Peter at this point and sternly rebukes him. And he says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish. Do you think, do you not think I cannot appeal to my father who will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, the armies of heaven, they they will come and destroy these men. I'm not scared. Why are you so scared, Peter? Put your sword up. But he says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 
Matthew records a rebuke of Peter. And John actually uses his name. But Peter says, don't use my name. Because he is so sternly rebuked. And Jesus says to him, Peter, if you want to fight by the sword and you want to defeat, uh, you, you, you want to defeat these people, guess what? You're going to die by the sword. What he's saying to him ultimately is you're going to die in your sin. You want to fight this off? Jesus has to go to the cross and die for sin under the wrath of God. And, and if we fight by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, ultimately the sword of God's wrath. But we move on. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? It's fairly sarcastic here. You've come out here to the garden in secret because I'm some sort of criminal. What, are you scared of me? You scared? You got your clubs? You got your swords? You got security? And you come out to this itinerant preacher who's praying in a garden with a bunch of misfit evangelists? Really? Oh, you're so big. You're so bad. Wow. Really? That, that's who you are? Because verse 49, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. Why did you not do this before now? I, remember the whole week at Passover, Jesus is not shying away from his agenda. He is staring these teachers down in public. He is turning over tables. He is condemning Herod's temple. Everybody can see him. Crowds are all around. And he says, you wait till now, you bunch of cowards in the dark? Really? You're scared. Day after day, I was with you in the temple and you did not seize me. And the reason they didn't is because God wouldn't allow it. But then he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And in John, Jesus says, this is your hour. This is your hour. This is what you've been waiting for. God has not allowed this to happen until this moment. Don't think you're in control of it with your swords and your clubs. If you had any sort of power, you could have arrested me all week long and you never did it. You're weak and you're scared. That's why you come by night because you're scared of the people. He says, but here's your big moment. In the plan of God, you've got a big moment. And what is it? Arresting the Son of Man. And we see in the religious leaders this sort of weak, hidden hypocrisy that we can be guilty of today. Where, where sin leads us to this point where we're, we're so scared of losing something. And, and we're so scared of what others would think of if we just came out and said... I don't believe this stuff. I really don't like the things that are being said in church and in small group. And I really don't, I, I don't appreciate what Christians stand for. But we don't want to cause riots or disruption from the people. We don't want to disappoint the folks around us. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your campus minister, maybe it's your BFG. You realize, if I really said, that I don't believe this stuff. But what's going on in your heart right now is the gospel of Jesus Christ is beginning to threaten things in your life. You hear Bible studies about marriage and you realize 
that you need to be a better husband, you need to be a better wife for the sake of the gospel, and, and it begins to threaten you. You, you. you hear principles about giving your money for the sake of the gospel, and it begins to threaten you. And in public, you shake hands with Jesus, you kind of keep the peace in public, but behind the scenes, in the dark, you are fighting with clubs and swords to get rid of him. And in your heart, you're beginning to question the scripture. You're beginning to say, is that even true? That was written by men. That book's so old. This is just one viewpoint. But in public, you don't want to cause a disruption, so you keep playing the game, and you keep showing up, and you keep singing the songs because you want to keep the peace. And there is a betrayal that can go on, just like with the religious leaders in that kind of religious behavior and it's hypocrisy and it's betrayal behind the scenes you're contemplating how can I get out of here how can I get rid of Jesus notice verse 50 then they all fled Peter with them all of them and then we see this promise that Jesus it's sort of The the promise you will all betray me is meant to hang over our heads as we leave the Lord's Supper, the upper room, as we go into the garden, as we find the disciples sleeping, and here as we see Jesus being taken away, you will all leave me, you will all forsake me, every single one of you, not just the betrayer, and here we see it happen. And notice the text, they left him. They ghosted him. They're gone. Not helping. And then Mark says, fled. They're not walking slowly. They're not standing there just watching Jesus being taken away. There's nothing we can do. No, they're running. In the dark, they, they don't want people to see their face and who they are. They don't want people to know they were ever associated with this criminal. See, I believe when Jesus heals the man's ear that Peter slices, see that in the other Gospels, they give up and they say, we're not going to fight? We're not going to fight? There's no Holy Spirit club, sword that we're going to take after these guys? There's no supernatural power coming over us in this moment to destroy the religious establishment and to take Rome out, we're powerless. He's powerless. They're taking him away. We can't do anything about it. And in there, they feel helpless and weak and there's nothing they can do. And that's when they run. When they realize we have no power. And they betray Jesus in weakness. And then all of the sudden, The weirdest two verses, I think, in the whole Bible. (laughs) And everybody is asked, what are you about to say? Because out of nowhere, verse 51, there is a young man who followed him. And this young man has nothing on but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. 
Why do they, who knows why they seized him? This guy, maybe, maybe he heard commotion from, he was asleep, jumps up, wraps a cloth around him and runs to see what's going on. And he shows up and they think you're here too. Let's arrest him too. And then as he goes to escape, he left the linen cloth. Maybe they jerk it off of his body. Or maybe he just dropped it. I got to get out of here. I didn't mean to run up on this scene. And he ran away naked. Now, why is that there? I've asked that question for three weeks. That's why I just kept pushing it off, pushing it off. What are we going to do here? Why is this weird story here? It's actually a very powerful scene that Peter says, don't include me with the sword, but I do want to drop some hints in of what it means to be exposed as a traitor. And this embarrassing story. Who's going to play this guy in the Easter play? (laughs) Peter wants to drop it in here. To expose a truth for us. The disciples who said they would never leave him, Peter wants us to stop in that moment and go, right in that moment as they fled, they're all exposed as traitors. They're all left with nothing to cover their blatant betrayal. They are exposed before God, running away from him, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and I believe in, in the gospel of Mark, Peter has him to leave some hints as to what's going on. If you turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 46, we see when Jesus is being taken to the tomb, you can flip there on your phone and your Bible, it's on the screen. Joseph bought a, notice, a linen shroud. This is the only other time this is used in the Gospel of Mark. In taking, he wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of rock. Here we find a linen shroud being buried with Jesus. This young man's garments of shame are buried in the tomb with Jesus. I don't believe this was a specific linen shroud, but I believe Peter is dropping some hints here into what he's trying to teach us about betrayal. And then the term young man, we see linen used in Mark 15, 46, and then we see the same term young man used in Mark 16, 5. As they come into the tomb, verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man. Now we know this is an angel. But Mark uses the term young man here. And this young man is on the right side, dressed in, notice now, not a linen robe, a white robe, and they were alarmed. It's not necessarily about the young man specifically, his identity, it is about the shroud. (laughs) The shroud of betrayal here is replaced with a white robe of glory, post-resurrection glory. In Mark 9, 3, this same term that is used of the white robe is used of Jesus in the transfiguration. 
where he is transfigured before them and all they see is his glory and it's described as intensely white. Jesus, become, his clothes become radiant, intensely white as no one on earth, earth could bleach them. So pure. And what Mark is trying to do here is just drop hints for traitors that if you would expose your betrayal, your dirty linen garments of sin can be replaced with white robes of post-resurrection glory, the robes of Christ's glory, if you would confess your sin. And see, this is kind of a hidden parable here to give us gospel hope. And here we see what, what, what so many throughout history have described as the great exchange. We trade our sin, sinful robes of righteousness, dirty toilet paper of betrayal. When we believe in Jesus' cross and we believe in his righteousness, we trade those things for his robes of glory, for his whitewashed robes of glory that he gives us. And notice throughout the text, there's, there's some things that um, are hidden. We started out, the name of the betrayer is hidden. Jesus' name is hidden. The one standing there is hidden. And the only name that is mentioned is Judas. And what Peter is telling us here is we must be exposed. Every one of our names must be exposed as Judas. We must be left naked before God with nothing else to say about our sin. But yes, it's true. We are traitors. You see, many of us come and we look at the story of Judas and we feel self-righteous. We're just like the disciples, not me. If everybody else betrays you, I will never betray you. Some of you are here today saying, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad, not like Judas, where I would be blatant and calculate it. And that's why you've never dealt with your sin. That's, not, that's why you've never come to terms with what the cross does for sinners. And your best robes of linen today have to be taken off before God. And you have to be laid bare in your sin. And you have to say, yes, it is sin. From the biggest to the smallest, from the thought to the feeling, in every way I have blatantly betrayed Jesus. And here today, I've heard of a gospel where Jesus has died for my sin, and he has offered me mercy, and I reject it in these moments. It is sin. It is betrayal, to be exposed in your betrayal. There's hope to have those garments replaced with glory. And the question Peter would ask is, what are you hiding from? Why are you trying to cover it up? Jesus has already outed you on the cross. The cross is a cosmic billboard of who you are. Jesus has to die for your sin under the infinite wrath of God. That means you're an infinite sinner. Why are you hiding from that? Jesus has already said it. And he is the one that's been exposed and naked and humiliated for your betrayal. Why, why are you running from that truth? The good news is Jesus has publicly kissed death for us. God's wrath has been laid upon him. His robe of glory 
has been ripped off and his power has been taken away and he has died hiding nothing about your sin in your place. You see, I thought that I'd gotten away with the ice cream debacle. When my mom just kind of walked away, I was like, she believed me. Wow. And I heard her talking to my dad on the phone and then there was silence. And then all of a sudden I heard my dad walking through the house. And I thought, I am caught and there's nowhere to run. I'm in the back of my house. Here comes my dad and he is coming to my room and he's very angry, which did not happen much in my house growing up. And he walks into the room and says, did, did you steal your friend's popsicle? And I said, no, I did not. And he looked at me and he said, you're an idiot. <laughs> he said, son, you have red popsicle all over your mouth. You have popsicle dripping down your shirt. I, your mom found a popsicle stick behind the house. You, you're an absolute idiot. I'll never forget it. And it's the same thing that's going on with some of us here today. As we refuse to confess our sin. You stand in the garden with Judas you actually stand at the cross before Jesus and you say, it wasn't me that did that. It wasn't my sin. And you stand there red-handed. You stand there with the stain of a kiss of betrayal on your lips when the King of glory offers you his pure white robes if you would just confess and turn to him. 